So today I wanted to talk about uh, losing your nerve and this could be as an owner or as a trainer. And I've talked a lot about growing up initially in the world of horses and, you know, in the world of horses, it's it's was sometimes still a little bit frowned upon. Uh, not frowned upon, but you felt a little bit embarrassed, I think, to say I've lost my nerve. But it was a little bit more understandable. You could have a fall and get quite injured or not get injured, but it, it would shake you up. And so you'd lose your nerve. And basically, you know, then back then it was, you got to get back on the horse. That's the only way you're going to cure it. And I don't necessarily think that was the answer. I think if you jump back on the horse, yeah, you might, you might get there. But I don't think it made it instantly made it go away after riding for a little bit. Sometimes for me personally, it was getting back on a different horse that helped. So, yeah, I wanted to bring up this losing your nerve in dog trainer, in dog training, dog trainer, in dog training or as an owner, because this is a completely reasonable thing to happen. And I'm going to go over a few different scenarios where this can happen and what's helped me to get over it when I've lost my nerve. So first of all, if you've experienced this or you are experiencing this, it's really, really normal. But I don't think it's something that's talked about enough. And I think it's something that's dismissed quite often. I think even sometimes people having a fear of dogs is dismissed quite a lot. I've heard a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, this person's scared of dogs or this culture is scared of dogs. And it's so silly, dogs are so great, dogs are so lovely. But that's that's not the best idea, really, because dogs can do damage. And they are in the media a lot for, you know, there's been a huge amount in the UK recently of uh, dog-related deaths. So if we're hearing about that in the media a lot, then that can easily put fear in us. And they have teeth. They are large predators. We often know that some of the larger breeds, the more powerful breeds, fall into the wrong hands. Therefore, they aren't necessarily under control. And in a lot of cultures, what we don't think of is that there's a lot of stray or feral dogs that actually carry a huge rabies risk. And rabies is the cause, a huge cause of death in a lot of countries. So that fear is actually quite reasonable. Although, you know, when we've only met lovely dogs, or we've had our own and we, we think of them as these lovely cuddly things, of course, you know, it's hard to imagine that sometimes. But a fear of dogs for me is really reasonable. And, you know, I have a fear of spiders. I don't think that's reasonable in the UK. There's not <laughs> no spiders that can cause you injury, but you know, that causes an emotional response in, in me, which has helped me with my training massively. But I would say that's an unreasonable fear. But dogs, I would say, is very reasonable. And 
we can easily lose our confidence in our own dogs, in our training, and actually we can we can become fearful of our own dogs. You know, I've had clients that have been pulled over and have broken bones or had their teeth knocked out when taking their dogs out. You've got clients that have dogs that redirect on them, that have had really, really significant injuries from that dog that's gone so over threshold at seeing a trigger or whatever is causing them to go over threshold that they've redirected onto the owner and caused puncture wounds or severe bruising. And then you've got dogs that aren't coping with the situation and showing aggressive um, behaviours towards their owners. And sometimes it, it, you know, you don't really think of, you don't really feel fear until you get bitten. And that's, that can be a huge shock because you don't always imagine that your dog is going to take it that far. And I don't think we always imagine how scary that can be. And I think I used to, you know, before, probably before I worked in rescue, actually, because I think before I worked in rescue, I had some pretty easy clients. I did a lot of dog walking. I, I think I volunteered in rescue in the States first. And I think that's when I felt my first, just a little bit unsure around dogs because I took out some, some dogs that I just, I didn't trust as much as a lot of the dogs I met. They weren't pet dogs anymore. They'd come from several different homes. They'd come from backgrounds we didn't know. They were big um, pit bull mixes. And, you know, they were strong. And I I still didn't have any particular bad incidents in that scenario, but I just remember thinking, oh, hmm, I feel, I just feel a little bit uncertain. I'm suddenly aware that I'm walking with an animal that could potentially do damage. And this doesn't necessarily have to be with a large dog. This can be with a small dog too. Because small dogs can give an, a nasty bite as well. I think that's what we forget too, and it hurts. And <laughs> sometimes it's even scarier when they go around for your ankles and your feet. We used to have to use riot shields sometimes to get out the little dogs in rescue, just to get to them, to get to their, their leads and get them out so we could clean them if they were really, really, um, you know, worried and showing majorly defensive behaviours. And probably the scariest horse I worked with, actually, um, in a riding school, they used to call him the Jack Russell because he used to go for your ankles. <laughs> he wouldn't go for, for anything else. It's not funny, really. It's a sad situation because he obviously had you know he was so fed up of being a riding school so fed up of kids around him that he was just you know fed up really but he was also terrifying to to go in with if only I had the knowledge I have now and I could have approached things very differently but at the time I was 16 it was my work experience and I had no idea but we have to let go of those times so so yeah, so when I worked in rescue, there was a couple of incidents. Unfortunately, we have to put dogs in situations that that we wouldn't normally want to. We have to push them a little bit. Sometimes we have to get them out to change their mindset. That can really make a difference. And as a result of that, or we or we're working with dogs that are that do react quickly, uh, that have come from 
pasts we don't know about, have had past experiences, learning histories that haven't been positive, and dogs that become really overstimulated. And I think that's what we've got to remember as well. Overstimulated behaviour can be as scary and as risky sometimes as aggressive behaviour because you have a dog that can really quickly lose control and bite and mouth and that mouthing escalates into breaking the skin. So, yeah, so there was incidents like that where, and I never got severely bitten, but I did witness times when people did. And I did have a few uh, minor bites myself, but those were enough to shake me up. And I think we have to admit that it shakes you up. It, it sends your adrenaline high. It, you know, it, it changes something in you that says, oh, that happened quickly. That hurt. Or just that that worried me. And that's shaken our nerves. That's made us think twice. That's made us feel a bit cautious because we didn't think we didn't always think of that before. Some of us might. And I think that's good. Probably more sensible people. I think I went in a bit oblivious. Um, but we have to remember that it, that is really normal. If your dog has pulled you over and you've injured yourself, if your dog has redirected on you, if you have been bitten, if you're a trainer working with a client and things have have got out of control or you've ended up getting a nip, then that is going to shake you up. And, you know, if it doesn't, I think that's amazing, but I think it's it's really unlikely that it won't in any way. So first the first thing we've got to admit is that's normal that we've lost our nerve. It might it might just be a dog. It might be our dog that we know so well and our family members might be saying, What, it's only Fido, you know, he's all right, he didn't mean to. Yeah, and they and they and we might have done something wrong. And we might have pushed them. But it still happened and it still worries us. And we are gonna make mistakes and we can't always be super cautious because we're gonna let our guard down. So we have to admit that we have lost our nerve and that's okay. And it's okay that it might take us a little while to get it back. So I definitely wasn't the same trainer I was when I came out of rescue, which is which is normal, but I would say that shook my nerves a little bit. In some senses, there was some incidents that did. I, th- I think it comes and goes in rescue. Because you're working with so many dogs so much and you're going to have incidents and you're going to lose your nerve and then you're going to be able to get it back a bit and then it's going to go a bit again. And it doesn't even have to be anything major. I think it just, you slip back into into that feeling of how you felt after whatever shook you up happened. And it might not be anything that happened to you, but it could be something that you witnessed, it could be something that you heard about. Because we always think, Oh, what if, what if that was me? Or what if things were different? Or what if, you know, that situation hadn't gone as 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 well as it as it had, and and things could have been worse. So I think it comes and goes. And someone did 
I remember a volunteer saying to me once in a, in a training I was delivering, she said, why does everybody look terrified? Why do all the staff look terrified when they're handling the dogs? And it made me feel a bit annoyed because, and she said, that must be making the dogs worse. Which, in, in her defence, yes, they probably do pick up on that. But there's so many things going against dogs in rescue anyway. There's so much trigger stacking. The dogs are all stressed. They're in a stressful environment. You know, they've had their whole life uprooted. I don't think the handlers and the staff members that are doing everything they can for these dogs should also feel that they are to blame for another trigger or another stressor because they have enough to deal with. And I don't think that small thing is going to add a massive amount to the dogs because the dogs are already going through so much. Now, I do always say, you know, if, if you're doing a particular massive thing with a dog, like a testing them with another dog and you're feeling super anxious then yeah by all means speak up and say look I don't know why but I'm feeling anxious could I hand the dog over to someone else I think that's a really brave move for any handler to say I I can't do this today we either stop doing it or somebody else takes over but the fact that people are nervous, yes, that's understandable. I'd say 90% of the dogs you're handling in rescue are reactive or have shown or do show aggressive behaviours or have the potential to redirect. Or you don't know. We don't know their history. They're astray. We don't know how they're going to react. We can only go on what we're seeing as body language and the little that we have seen. So... If you're always handling dogs that react, that have big reactions, that do redirect, then yeah, of course, you are going to be on edge. And we can go, I think the the best, the first step to that is admitting that and saying, yeah, I am nervous. I am a bit worried. I am a bit tense. And then we can start the process of, of trying to work through that. Okay, let's see, am I breathing? Are my shoulders relaxed? Am I giving the dog as much space as is safely possible? Am I giving them a loose lead if that's appropriate at the time? You know, then we could admit to ourselves what we feel. Can we fix it? Where can we fix it? And if we can't fix it, that's fine too. Because we're in an intense situation and we're doing the best we can. And, if, and, I, and like I said, our nerves will come and go. And some days we're going to feel particularly bad. And then we just need to do what we can and not do too much and then some days we're going to be feeling a bit better and then we can own those days feel bold work on getting our confidence back that way but it's all it all comes and goes so that's quite rescue focused but as an owner as well especially if you're dealing just with your dog who does have reactions or has pulled you over or has bitten you then obviously that's the only dog you're dealing with and that also shakes you up. And I wanted to talk again about um, about I lost my nerve with one-to-ones because I went to a client's house and I got bitten and it's the first time I've ever been bitten on a one-to-one. Not badly, but it really, it, it really made me question myself and it really it made me feel really sad afterwards because my view is always if a 
someone books me, if someone hires me, then it's my job to handle the situation. It's my job to motivate the client. It's my job to work with them or change the way I'm delivering information if they're finding it hard to understand. You know, I think obviously you're always going to get the odd person, which is really, really rare, but the odd person where it's not going to work out or you're not going to get through to them. But most of the time, you know, I'll look at myself and say, this client's not really doing the work, not really doing training, perhaps they don't have time. How can I change the way I deliver this information or I provide this information or or the way we do this? How can I make the client feel more motivated or feel more passionate about doing this? And so the fact that I got bitten, I felt so disappointed in myself because I felt like, could I, how could I have delivered the safety information more clearly? How could I have controlled the situation better? And it was really frustrating. So I think I lost my nerve in my training sense and I lost my nerve a bit with dogs because, you know, it's, it's, it's always a surprise, I think, when they make contact with skin because they don't generally want to, you know, unless we are in a, a small space and we're putting them under pressure. Dogs generally want to avoid confrontation and that is the thing that I see the most all the time is they will do anything not to bite. So when they do bite, you think... God, I must have really put them under pressure or they must really feel like there's no other way and I should have seen that. And it's always a surprise. So I lost my nerve a bit and I I worked with a very similar dog at the same time. And I would say I've just got my confidence back there and he has done great and he's taking treats and, you know, I'm just getting there. But it's probably taken me a good few months of working with lots of dogs again to to get that back and and to kind of forgive myself as well because you know I think I think you know I didn't do anything massively wrong I did deliver the information I did do the safety stuff and and but you know I I could have I thought of ways how could I have been clearer and you know I did beat myself up for that but as an owner, and from that situation, for the first thing is you have to admit it, you know, it's, it still doesn't seem like something that we talk about much. I've lost my nerve. I'm a trainer, I work with dogs all the time, and I lose my nerve sometimes. As an owner, it's easy to lose your nerve too. I mean, dogs are powerful creatures even if it's just pulling you over on the lead or jerking your shoulder, that can really shake you up and it can be scary. And the first thing we need to do is admit that and tell people and talk about it if we can. I have lost my nerve right now. And then we need to take action of of what's going to help us. So if we need to take a couple of days off walks, then yeah, do it. Because you're going to be better to your dog if you're giving them nice enrichment days or and you're calm and you're relaxed and you're able to build that bond up again. So if your issues are happening outside, then I would definitely take it back. I'd I'd probably do like a really basic training thing and teach them something, you know, go back to something simple. Even if they know a hand touch, just do a hand touch and build it up. And because I feel like them doing something simple and getting it right and pleasing you and you getting results from it 
that's such a great way to boost both your confidence and and just enrichment and take the pressure off yourself. You know, admit um, walks are just scary. It's like they're scaring me right now, so I'm not going to do them. If you have the budget, then get a dog walker to take them out for, you know, an experienced dog walker if you're having issues or or if they're easy, then a friend. And, you know, let yourself go out. Go and have that self-care. Go and let someone sit with your dog so you can just go out and take a walk without them and just breathe and just take that time. But really admit to yourself when you can't do it because that's really important. And if it's an issue inside, then get help. Don't be afraid to seek help because don't kind of live in fear of, of your dog and not being able to move around, then we need to be realistic about where we're going and talking to a trainer can really help make a plan with that. Like, let's try this and this and they can help you just chat through making the best decision of um, and the best course of action. And I know that sometimes it's really expensive and it's hard to budget for that, but if we look at the long term, you could end up spending as much money on you know getting yourself through it so don't hesitate to find to hire a trainer also if you are fearful then having that peace of mind is hugely valuable to you having a plan is hugely valuable and knowing what your realistic options are and feeling okay about those is hugely valuable and if you have access to someone with a dog who is pretty bomb-proof, then hanging out with them, taking them for a walk, that is huge. You know, for me, if I lost my nerve with a horse, getting on a horse that was really trustworthy, I don't think there's anything better than that. Just boost your confidence again and say, oh, yeah, okay, that I remember the good parts of this. And so we just want to get back here with my dog and feel relaxed. And the main thing as well is take that thing away. I think we get, get really bogged down with, I'm anxious, so my dog's going to be anxious. I'm stressed, so my dog's going to be stressed. I'm scared, the dog's going to pick up on that. Yeah, of course they are. They can smell stress. They can smell our emotional states. They know. We give off sense that we can't imagine we can't hide that from them. And I don't think we should try. I think that we should, we should just let that go. We aren't going to be able to hide our feelings. And the more we stress about our dogs picking up on them, the more those feelings are going to get worse. So I think if we just accept them, I'm scared. My dog might react slightly differently to me. That's okay. I'm feeling anxious. My dog might have more reactions today as a result of that. But I know that's the reason and that's okay. We need to stop blaming ourselves for that and admit that we have feelings. We're going to work through it together with our dog and that's how we're going to get through it. Let's admit it. So this is me admitting that sometimes I lose my nerve and that's okay. And I hope you admit that to yourself too. I would love to hear if you're going through this at the, at the moment. If you're an owner or a trainer, I think it's really important that we discuss it and we talk about it. So thanks for listening.
Hello and welcome to another episode of me just talking about random dog stuff and handler emotional health. Uh, So I put up a post today about can we be too kind and I wanted to talk a little bit more about about that subject because I do feel like obviously the you know it's no secret that the dog training world is hugely divided between you know trainers that use aversive tools and people that and trainers that would say they're R plus force free or Lima or whatever you want to want to call yourself so obviously I would sit on the reward base scale that's I always train with rewards and kindness and and the best way I can see that it works with relationships is to avoid using aversives and tools I don't feel that they are necessary in training and I certainly wouldn't encourage any owners to use them but I I'm definitely seeing like a crossover path at the moment that is kind of tipping into being a little bit too kind so I'm seeing a lot of trainers sort of um you know, suggest that doing obedience is a bad thing, doing quite intense heel work is a bad thing, and some people saying that agility is a bad thing. And of course, these things can be bad, depending on how we're training them and depending on the dog. So, you know, I have met some dogs that perhaps might not have massively benefited from agility. However, I don't think they were having a miserable life because of it. The owners, I actually got called in once um, very early on to a client that wanted their dog to calm down. However, they needed them to be wired for agility, so they didn't really want to do the calming work. So that's when I started to see this sort of clash of, of how it might not work. Because, you know, when we talked about calming stuff, they were really not, the owner wasn't too happy about doing that because they wanted their dog to be wired when they got to agility so it could, could do the speed. So, of course, if it's affecting you negatively or it's affecting the dog negatively, then perhaps it's not the most beneficial thing. But in general, doing any of these things, as long as we're training them with with positive reinforcement and we're doing it with joy, I think that's the most important thing, is if it's competitive, we're doing it with because we love it, not because we're trying to get to the end goal then I think it's so, so beneficial that we do these things. So the heel work thing, you know, like really, even if we're looking at the sort of fancy heel work where your dog's nose is sort of glued to the handler's side and they have the flicky feet, I love that. And I will actually use it as a semi-management, semi-coping mechanism for when I'm working with reactive dogs in the city. So sometimes when when I'm called into a case and I'm in central London, you know, there's there's no way you can work on reactivity. There's just no way. We've got dogs that live in flats that need to go out to the toilet. We've got no way to, you know, if it's a large dog, we can't even put them in a bag or associate them to a carrier and get them to a quieter place. If it's, you know, we don't have a car, we've got to get them out every day so they can go to the toilet. It's a welfare thing. And there's they're in such a dog-saturated area that, you know, they, they need a coping mechanism, me, um, 
coping method. They need a strategy. They need a way that these owners can get them out. And because there's just dogs the minute they, they walk out the door. So heel work's a great way to do that because I have actually never met a dog that didn't enjoy doing heel work. They, you know, it's handler focused, it's easy, they get rewarded for being by your side. It's really lovely and it can be a beautiful way to build into a management system to get that dog to a quieter location or to get them out on their toilet break. Yes, of course, we want our dogs to practice natural behaviours and have times to sniff. But as long as they're getting that at some point, then this heel work can be a great way to to teach them that, that alternative behaviour. OK, I know there's triggers around you. I know that's hard for you. You just have to focus on me and you're going to get rewarded for that. And yeah, you. some people might argue that you're not changing their emotional state. But I think that you are still, in some sense, changing that emotional state. You're rewarding an alternative behaviour. They are seeing that those triggers come and go, regardless of their reactions. And they're getting a positive thing with those triggers around. So, you know, we, we can't escape classical conditioning when we're working with operant conditioning. They are always going to go hand in hand. So, yeah, I, I mean, I've even done toy play all the way to the park and back with a dog because it was the only way we could get that dog to a quieter place without them reacting because it was everything, the environment was so against us. So, you know, in in some of those aspects, we're not forcing the dog to do it. We're We're building in movement, which can help with reactivity, just like our pattern games or our... Uh, you know, our our toy play, which changes that emotional state, it's, it's another form of movement that is going to help us work through that. And, how, you know, for me, what's what owners enjoy. So I'm not always looking for what's going to motivate the dog the most. Sometimes I'll go into a client's house and I'm looking to see what's going to motivate the client the most because that's the most important thing. You know, if I go in and I say... Okay, I want you to, you know, get your dog doing full-on obedience. I want it to be downstairs. I want it to stay when you walk out the room. I want you to do full-on heel work. If they don't have the time to do that, they're just going to switch off. They're not going to do anything with the dog and they're not going to get anywhere. But if I've got someone that, that loves to go running and they do that as a sport and their dog is one that would enjoy running with them, then maybe introducing some canny cross or some activity that the dogs the dog can do together together you know maybe that agility where they can run around that agility or something a bit softer like um hoopers which is a great uh, agility alternative so it's what motivates you because that's really important you might have a dog that is completely unsuitable for something like agility but it doesn't mean that they aren't still going to enjoy the process because, yeah, you might have a chihuahua that's not going to get to top level or, you know, it's it's not going to like be your agility superstar. It's not your classic agility dog. But they're going to love a small dog agility going up and down those ramps and little jumps. You know, it doesn't mean that they can't really enjoy it. And if that's what motivates the owner, then ultimately it's going to motivate the dog. And that is really all we're looking for.
We can't forget that our dogs are bred to work and we also have to keep in mind that they are animals and they are captive animals. I think that's sometimes hard to get our heads around because there are, there are companions, there are pets, whatever you want to call them, they're our family, our babies, but they're still captive animals. If you look at their lives, they don't sit down with Netflix, they don't have games to play, you know, they've got their mental stimulation, but that's all they've got. And if you think realistically how much time we are giving them as normal owners, so not looking particularly at a trainer home, say they get an hour exercise out, outside, they get an hour's walk, and you can fit in 10 minutes of mental stimulation, that's, you know, still less than, you know, that's more than 22 hours that they have nothing to do, which is crazy. So that's a that's a captive animal. They're walking around the house. They only have what mental stimulation you give them, what variety they do. They've got their walk that you take them on, which is sometimes just for them, but sometimes obviously we're going to add a little bit in for us as well. We might pop into the coffee shop. And that's it. That's the, that's the only time they have throughout the day. And otherwise, they're just in the home. And they, you know, people always say, oh, well, they just sleep anyway. But they just sleep anyway because usually, you know, what else are they going to do? They're, they're bored. So they just switch off. You know, not to say that our dogs shouldn't have nice rest and stuff, but sometimes they're resting because they simply have nothing else to do. So they are captive animals, so we need to keep them active. We've bred these dogs to work. And if you're thinking about what a border collie would have been doing, what our hunting dogs would have been doing, they would have been out all day doing stuff with us so it's so important that we we activate them and activate ourselves which is is whatever whatever floats your boat you know what do you enjoy that's why I always say try a little bit of everything take your dog to a scent work class take them to man trailing if you've got a side hand practice some lure coursing see what you think of that is it fun to watch your dog do that do you get into it get competitive you know a lot of people say oh this competing thing putting our dogs through that no I don't I think sometimes so my husband's a good example of this when he wants to work out he has to have an end goal so when he was boxing he had to have a boxing fight that he was doing like an amateur boxing fight he had to have that booked in before he was motivated to train when he started running he had to have a half marathon booked in before he would train so he's got that competitive goal otherwise he just he just won't train and that that's how some people work they have to have someone to compete against they have to have an end goal and the excitement of the competition you know when we were young we took our horses into shows and we did little jumps or we did family pony that was a good one and it was it was nerve-wracking, it was exciting, and it was a whole wonderful day out where, you know, we'd all have a picnic and everybody else was exciting. It was all just for a rosette, you know, if we got a rosette. But it was, the competing was the fun part. So if that's what gets you going, then there's nothing wrong with doing competitive stuff. Even if the names of these things make you cringe, like obedience, you know, that's just, that's that doesn't have to be... A bad thing that's just a dog doing wonderful things that you've reinforced we have to name these things and and 
you know, the names come usually from a long history of stuff. There's still that whole thing of the dog needs to walk on the left because you hold your gun on the right and we still pick up these traditions. But that doesn't mean that it stops being fun for the dog. And that's what's really important is that both of you are having fun. So you have to find what you're going to want to do with your dog in order to get up every day and do it. And, you know, the other thing that I see a lot, and this is obviously more extreme, but when I was in rescue, it was it was actually rare to see a dog that was really underweight and had was starved. It was those cases came up quite rare, rarely. Um, but it was really common to see obese dogs because well, I don't really know why, I guess, because we're tipping over into that being too kind where we we don't want to say no yeah have another slice of cake and oh, it won't do you any harm I just you know they live for a short a short while so I do see the the temptation in that you know my dog's 11 now and he lives for food like his life is is food he waits for his meals I just feel like that's that's always been his only true excitement in life of course he likes training and stuff and walks but I mean, he is food obsessed. And sometimes I think as he's getting older, I just want to stuff him with food because I know it make him so happy. But obviously it wouldn't in the long run because he's already probably got a bit of arthritis looking a bit stiff. So extra weight is not going to benefit him. But yeah, that, that was much more common to see than an underweight dog. And while it doesn't, I don't think it provokes the same reaction yes we feel sad but when we see a starved dog we you know it really gets you but when you actually see those dogs moving around and you see how physically they are are affected it does start to really upset you and you do see that that is just as hugely cruel as it is to starve your dog and the other thing that I put in that reel about can we be too kind is something that I do feel that we're all a little bit guilty of. I definitely am. Where when we're doing training, we sometimes reward something else, something that we either weren't going to train or we reward a lower criteria than we're asking for. And that's our intentions are really nice there because we want to reduce frustration or we want to praise the effort because our dog's offering to do something great and that's awesome and we want to praise that but that can sometimes be unfair in itself because clarity is so important in our training and in our our dog world and that's where I often see positive training fail or when people say it hasn't worked for me or haven't been able to train this behaviour. But it's often because we're really unclear with our training. So obviously markers are really important because it's telling the dog exactly what we like. But when we get inconsistent or when we get a bit wish-washy with what we're rewarding, then our dogs are going to just get confused. So that's why I, I talk about training plans quite a lot on my membership because it can make a really big difference if you've got it written down and you've got your clear criteria and you know what you're aiming for and it becomes a bit more methodical where, okay, this isn't working, so I'm going to take a step back and it becomes much more clear 
I'm going to take a step back rather than reward the odd one and maybe reward this one. And then your dog's like, what? What do you want from me? So, you know, say, for example, I was going to teach a hand touch. And my first criteria would be the dog moves its nose towards my hand and I'd mark and reward that, mark and reward that. And then I want them to actually make contact with my hand. So that's me upping my criteria. So I'm only going to reward the contact made. And what gets confusing there is if, you know, obviously we've got to work through a little bit of frustration with our training. We can't completely protect our dogs from frustration. If they're showing those little frustration signals, I might even work through those a bit, depending on, on the dog and depending on how affected they are. If it's like, obviously, if they're really frustrated, obviously I'm going to give them a break. But if it's just a part of their pro learning process, then I'm going to push through. And the only way we're going to get from one criteria to the next is usually from a little bit of frustration, right? So they've been gesturing towards my hand each time and got a treat. Now I'm not giving them a treat. So in their frustration, they give a big old boot with their nose and they make contact with my hand. And then, yes, they get the reward. So they go, ah, okay, but it's frustration that got them there. And then I'm going to reward only those, so only the firm nose touches. So if I get wish-washy at this point and they do a gesture, but I reward it anyway, that's when all the lines get blurred because I felt guilty because they'd made a lovely effort and I didn't want to not pay it so I pay them but ultimately that's confusing to the dog because they've gone oh, hang on so I'm being rewarded for any contact any gesture and then we we end up giving up because we aren't making progress in that behavior but what we want to do is say no I'm only rewarding the firm nose touches even I'm not going to reward the light nose touches anymore get those get those if I'm consistently not getting them then I'm just going to drop back a step so it's not a case of our reward every now and then it's okay now I'm going straight back to reward all of the gestures towards the nose now we've got this far I'm going to move my step up again I'm going to reward only the firm nose touches and if we're getting results here then I can move on so I can get a really a firmer nose touch or if I'm going for duration, I can um, add duration or I might be switching to another hand, whatever your next criteria is. But it just really helps to have a plan, write it down and just make things clear for your dog. So only reward what you want at the time. You know, if your dog offers you a little paw during and it's really cute, that's really cute. But don't reward it because it's not what you want. And yeah, I'm really bad for that. I'll always, I'll set out and I'll be like, right, I'm going to train this trick. So I'm going to train the first part of this trick and then, yeah, Badger or whatever dog I'm training will do something else and I'll go, oh, that'll make a cute trick too. Let's do that. But, you know, then the dog's like, what does she want? So keep clear and, you know, it is great that your dog's doing the effort. And you can still, you know, say good with your voice. That's great but they have to reach criteria before they get the treat. So decide on that and be firm with yourself and say, nope, they don't get the reward for that. So then they try the other behavior and they get rewarded for that. It's clear to them that's what they want. That's what they, I'm going to do. And it's cha it challenges them. You know, they need to build up. You see, sometimes dogs get bored doing the same thing over again. They want the challenge. 
And it's a huge confidence booster, right? So if they are challenged, I present you with a challenge, they do it, they get the reward, they get the reward again and again, they start to get the idea, okay, this is really clear, that's exactly what she wants, and I'm getting it right, great, I'm acing this, I feel awesome. So clarity in your training is also kindness.